Alright, so last week, unfortunately, we had a bit of a special sermon that we did for Tao and Rumi coming. Um, but the last passage that we read in Deer, and if anyone, any of you listened to the sermon, it was on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And essentially, brief overview of the story Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch, a very powerful man, you know, in Ethiopia on his way traveling through Israel. Philip was one of the deacons from one of the earlier chapters who just happens to hear him reading Isaiah 53. And so in those, well, do you know what that means? He hops up into it, explains it to him, and then the eunuch says, well, can't I be baptized now? Well, I don't see why not. Baptizes him, and then somehow Philip gets teleported to a random town on the coast of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, Israel. Um, And then it says... Philip found himself in this town. He passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Pretty much he just went up the coast preaching the gospel. And that's kind of where we're left at at the moment. And then we're introduced to a man who we knew from the stoning of Stephen. Where it said he sat there and approved the man's soul. Or as we know as Paul. Um, He's kind of introduced in this. This is his conversion story but... When the story starts, it's kind of like this introduction of a... When you have the superhero movie or something like that, and there's the ominous evil enemy, the arch nemesis that rocks up, it's the... When you finally see Darth Vader, it's like... Dun, dun, dun. I don't think that's actually how it starts. But it's, he's the ominous one who's out for the Christians. And something to clarify, I might call him Saul and Paul multiple times throughout this because I'll just get confused between the two. There's not a massive difference. All Paul is just his name in Hebrew. Saul is his name in Greek. So we just know him as Saul and we know him as Paul. So I might get mixed up and say both names. They both mean the same person. Now, we all know St. Paul of the New Testament, don't we? The guy, he wrote all of those epistles. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Pretty much half of everything that we know in the, in the New Testament is from him. And we know that he was a man who loved God. He preached the gospel. He went and ev- eventually died because he believed in Jesus. But he wasn't always that person. Because before Acts 9, before we get to that point, he was someone who absolutely hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. But what? why was he like that back then? But we know him as St. Paul, the one who gave us Romans, who gave us Corinthians, who gave us Ephesians. He's the one who taught us about justification by faith. He's the one that taught us that we don't have to, we, all we have to do is believe. He taught us that. So why did he hate it before his conversion? Now, I think just to understand Paul, could we go to Philippians 3, 5 to 6? Tell me there. Philippians. Yeah. Philippians 3, 5 to 6. Now, in this, Paul, to show that there's actually no reason to boast in our identity, he actually gives his resume for why he's essentially would be seen as such a good Christian. So this is what he tells of himself. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Interesting thing to start with. Essentially, that was something that one of the laws that all Israelite children were told they had to follow, well, not their parents were told they had to follow was that they must circumcise them on the eighth day. I hope I don't need to explain what circumcision is. And so essentially, that was something that was there, and it showed that his parents were obedient. They 
believed in the law of God and they obeyed it. And from the very moment that he was born, even he was obedient. And also that circumcision was an identifier, you're part of God's chosen people. Because God gave that, the circumcision commandment to Abraham saying, do this to all in your household because you are my chosen people. So he's saying, look, even from my birth, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, those being Abraham's descendants and the 12 tribes of Israel. And he said, I, so I am part of God's chosen people. And of the tribe of Benjamin, one of two tribes who stayed loyal to David, one being Judah, the one that David came from, and then Benjamin, from which Paul came. And he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. All, what he's saying is essentially I'm a top shelf. I'm pedigree Hebrew. Like you don't get better than me. There's like if there's a genetic lottery in which to win for God's favor, he won it. Because he wasn't part of some pagan nation and he wasn't part of the other ten tribes that got destroyed by the Assyrians. He's part of the loyal tribe. And better yet, he continues on in not just his genetic lottery, but also what he has done. As to the law, I am a Pharisee, he says. God's commands, that's what the law is. The things, those are the Ten Commandments, which we, which we know. All of us know the Ten Commandments, probably not by heart, but we know what they are. And from those came 613 other commands, which Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, God gives in the Old Testament. And he says, I followed every single one of them. And the Pharisees, back in that day, we know the Pharisees, the brood of Satan, the evil ones in the Gospels. But the thing is, they're not, while we see them painted as the arch nemesis, they're not necessarily pagans. They were Jewish people who loved God and who loved the law. They wanted the Israelite people to follow the law. But you see, they didn't know how to make the people follow the law except to give them a mountain of laws with which to explain all the other ones. So they had lists and lists. It's like when you just have one of those like a book that you would be reading and then it just flips out and there's just endless. It's like a cold commentary on how you have to live your life. And so they had thousands and thousands of commands which they had to live by, which they thought were from God. And Paul's saying, I did all of them. If, if someone was righteous by the law, I was that person. And so he continues on. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now... I don't want to jump around too much, so I won't make you jump to this passage. But in Galatians 1, 13 to 14, he's talking about his life before Judaism. He says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's just saying that I loved Everything that God gave to us. He loved all of the Old Testament, all the commands in it. And I'm just laboring this point to say, he just, just everything in the Old Testament, every command, he just read it and saw, I fulfill this. I, I do every single one of these. And that resume, that's the person he was before he was converted, before he came to know Jesus. And you even see his ultimate point of pride when you come to the last bit. As to the law, I am blameless. Who can, sit, who can honestly sit in this room and thinking about the Ten Commandments of God, think, I have loved the Lord with all my mind, soul, and strength, however it goes. 
Um, I've done everything absolutely perfect in my entire life and never, never sinned once. And Paul believes that about himself. From the moment of his birth to the moment that he is standing in Acts 9, he thinks, I have lived a perfect life. And so that's the person we're introduced to in Acts 9. That's the one that when we start in verse 1, just let me get back to the passage here. Um, He starts. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He, for some reason, hated Christianity. There was something in it, something about it that just peeved him so badly that he was just burning with anger, that he actually wanted to murder Christians, and he did. He murdered people. He would imprison them, send them to Jerusalem, and then all of the council of the high, the high priest and the ruling elites there, they were actually had permission to sentence people to death. For Christianity, and he approved of all of those. But why? Why did he hate them so much? Why did he hate Jesus? Why did he hate the gospel? It's funny because when you think about that resume that he gave us, Philippians three, when the way he thought about himself, do you really think his identity was in the fact that he loved God, or do you think his identity was in the fact that he was more righteous than any other person? He loved God because he gave him a law which he thought he could fully obey and so show everyone, look, I am actually right. I have the favor of God with me. Everything he thought he did was righteous because he was blameless. Therefore, he could go and do anything and it would be favored by God. He was God's messenger, he thought. His identity was found in his pride. His pride that he was more obedient, more righteous than others, than everyone else. And that's what all those Pharisees thought. They thought they were more righteous than others. And he thought he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so imagine what he thought when he heard of Jesus' gospel. A gospel which says, no one's righteous. I've done everything for you. All you have to do is trust and believe in me. He would have been like, whatever. Get out of here. I don't need you. I don't want you. And but yet, he thought it, it was disgusting. Because it hit right at the center of who he was. I'm a righteous person, so why would I need someone who's saying he's God and says that I need him? Get out of here. And so, thinking that he was zealous for God and that he loved God, the only logical solution he thought he could do was to go and imprison them, to murder them, to put an end to this what he thought was a blasphemy against God. And he was so blind... He couldn't even see that he was actually persecuting his own saviour. And see, it's, it's an interesting thing because we have to understand, do we ourselves also hate the gospel of this free grace? Do we hate that Jesus says, come all who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest? We obviously think that that sounds really good. And every, there's plenty of Christians today who say, of course, I believe Jesus forgave my sins. But then yet every day they still put their hope that they will be obedient. They, they see no need for Jesus' grace, really. There's plenty of unbelievers out there. They see no need for Jesus' grace. And I just think that there's also people that are blinded and don't see the truth of the gospel. Because if you think the gospel is an easy thing to accept, it really isn't. It tells you that you are wicked and sinful in the very core of who you are. I'm not saying you're Hitler. But 
essentially, okay, I shouldn't use that. Anyway, sorry, Germans are here. Um, but essentially, just that we are sinful and bad to the core. There's nothing good in us. And so that shouldn't be an easy thing to accept. And he says, you can't do anything, I'll save you. Who wants to accept that they can't control what's happening to them? Who wants to accept that they have to entrust their entire lives to some other person? And there'll be many Christians who say, I believe in Jesus. But then when they get to heaven, they'll say, God, look what I did for you. Look at all the things I did. But what should we do when we get to heaven? Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And that's impossible for Paul, Saul, to accept. He can't accept such a thing. And so that's why he's, he's breathing murder and threats. It's, his heart is filled with hatred against them. And so that's all he can do. We might not obviously go murdering Christians because we don't have free license to do that. But he had free license to do that. And so his heart took hold of that and did it. But we might take free license to leave church, to go and live the life, go attend church on a Sunday and just live life how we want Monday through Friday or Saturday. And just anything to avoid the idea that God calls us to this gospel of free grace and then we have to live it out. Anyway, we will go into the rest of the story now. So, Acts 9-2. Continue on. And asking him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Sorry, he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is what we were talking about before. He wants to imprison them and capture them, bring them, so that either they might stay in prison or be put to death. And we just, yeah, we continue to see just how much he hates Christians, because it even says men or women. He didn't simply want to restrict it just to the men. It's simply, uh, sometimes you see in the Old Testament, God says that you should wipe out everything. Wipe out their cattle, wipe out the men, the women, the children. Very can seem evil, but what it is, is he wanted a complete destruction, a complete wiping away of this Christianity. And this, the first start of this passage, it all builds up his hatred. We just see more and more of his hatred. And just for a point, to understand any belonging to the way, it just means they were called Christians who they were following in the way of God. That's what they thought. More importantly, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they saw Jesus as the way to heaven, the way which Paul refused to accept. But they saw him as the way. And so back in the early days, they were called the disciples, those belonging to the way. And he asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. Damascus wasn't in Judea. It wasn't in the place where all of the Jews lived. It was in a foreign country, of Syria, and it was their capital city. So this was not a place that the Jewish people normally spread out trying to interact with too much. They had synagogues there, but they didn't interact too much in their daily lives. But Paul's rage burns, and he says, I'm going to go to the ends of the earth to put this down. No one had gone as far as he would, as he did. And the high priest is like, yeah, let's go. I'll give you these letters. So he gives him the letters. And then we continue on in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, 
there are two more accounts that he that Paul retells of his conversion. One in Acts 22, one in Acts 26. I'm not going to go into it too much, but he tells them that he was actually going during noon. He was leaving in the middle of the day. So it was like he was leaving in like Monday, like when it was 43 degrees out in the middle of the day. Or like Friday night when it was still 36 degrees out. Like just absolute heat. Like when even cattle workers aren't working, he was out there with just passion, let's go. Probably just sun beating down. And then the greatest thing, this light shone around him. And he also says in one of his other accounts, it was brighter than the sun. The sun in the middle of the day. So we're given this astounding light. And likely, you would imagine, it was so intense that it just blinded him. It forced him to the ground. And likely, you imagine, he would have been, he would have been dazed. He wouldn't have known what was going on. Or maybe he knew such in, so intense a light. Surely this could only be some heavenly creature. Surely this could only be a messenger from God. And well, soon we're going to find out. So falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, it's an interesting thing. He's finally confronted with the person that he hates. Finally, this is almost like the ultimate chance. If he wanted to kill the ringleader, this is it. But he's blinded, thrown to the ground. And how does Jesus address him? Saul, Saul. Jesus only addresses people by repeating their name twice to his chosen people, to people he loves. Now, this is very interesting because Jesus is addressing Paul, the person who was murdering, killing, who hates him. And he spoke to him compassionately and sweetly, saying, Why have you persecuted me? I just want to labor on this point because I think there's something very important here. I think as Christians, we can sometimes think, Well, I've been saved now. God loves me. What if I told you God loved you the entire time before you became Christian? God loved you while you were sitting in all your sin and all your depravity, that the love didn't change suddenly when you were saved, that you were always the object of his love. It's an amazing thing, because he says he loved us from the foundation of the world. And we understand, when Jesus came to save us, he didn't come to save us so that he could love us. He came to save us because he loved us. It seems like something we've heard a million times, but I still think it's something we forget. Because to know that it wasn't that he did something which allowed him to love us, but the, his love was the fruit of our salvation. Sorry, not the fruit. The salvation was the fruit of his love. It was the thing which the salvation came from. And it's important to understand because then you realize there is nothing you can do which can escape, which means you can escape from the grace of God. Because think that Jesus is saying this to Paul right in the midst of him on the way to murder people. He's saying this before he received the Holy Spirit. He doesn't get the Holy Spirit till the end of the, the end of this passage. And he loves him in the middle of that. And so we continue on. And I just think of Romans 5.8. Because honestly, I hadn't really thought about this point about the idea of God loving us before we were sinners. Sorry, before we were saved. And it reminded me of Romans 5.8. For God shows his love for us in that 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were still sinners. Not that, like we are sinners now, but the importance of sinners completely. We didn't love God, we hated God. And I think that's just a beautiful point. And he says to him, I am, well sorry, continuing Acts 9 verse 5. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Yeah, Jesus is in heaven. So how is Paul persecuting him? How is Saul doing all this violence against him? Because Jesus tells us that we are united with him. Paul talks all the time about we are in Christ. It's like when, how do you put it? When Jesus, it talks about a marriage, a union between us and Christ. And it's like a man and a wife, husband and a wife. If, something, if someone does something to Michelle, you do it to me. If you hurt her, you hurt me. There is no separation, there is no division in that. And so that's the same way in which Jesus is with us. That's why we can trust in that promise he gives us at the end of Matthew 8. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Because he's married to us. He's joined to us. He's united with you more deeply than you even are with the closest person that you know. And so, when he says, you are persecuting me, he's saying that because as, he pers- as Paul persecutes God's people, he is persecuting God himself. Just think of it in, talks about it in Matthew 25, yeah, 34 to 40. I'm just going to read it out just because I think it helps. Um, you've likely heard this passage before. Jesus is talking about the final days. And he's saying when we are all before the judgment seat, you'll hear this. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right, I have to skip ahead a bit. Um, for, from verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer me saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you in a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to the least of the one of, as you did to the one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Because Jesus is married to us. He's united with us. So as we as a church do good to each other, as we do good to strangers, in a way we're doing that to Jesus. And we reward for that. Yeah. But that's why he can say, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is with us in our persecution and our suffering. Now we'll continue on throughout the rest of Acts. So verses 6 through to 9 we'll read now. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither, neither ate nor drank. This whole story about Paul's conversion, in a way, it's kind of a picture of what all of us have gone through. Some of us might remember the day that we came to faith. We can recall what it was. 
I know that I can, but not, not everyone has that. Some people came to faith gradually. But I can tell you, every one of us had a moment where there was no Holy Spirit, and then there was. There was a time when we hated God, and then we didn't. And it's the same with Paul here. His journey is a lot like ours. Where we filled with breathing murder, maybe not quite, but we did hate God before we came. We can think it because it's covered up in so many niceties before it comes out of our mouth, before it gets to our mind. But I can tell you that God tells us our hearts are wicked and deceitful, that there is nothing good in us. And then Paul, he's the great light. Some of us will remember our conversion when we came to faith. When the Holy Spirit came and Jesus first appeared to us and we understood what grace actually meant. And it's interesting because Paul's kind of given an elongated version, I think, of what is an instantaneous conversion for us. He, when he's confronted with Jesus, he's blinded. I think he's shown the true condition of his heart. He thought he was truly chasing after God. He thought he was going in the right way. And our sin often does that to us. It tells us we're going the right way. And I'll tell you now, don't trust yourself too much. Even as Christians, we think we're going the right way. And it's often good to distrust that we're probably getting a number of things wrong. There is grace for that. But I tell you that even when you try to think that you can understand your sin deep down, it's not an inanimate thing. It's trying to deceive you. And it is smarter than you. And so I think it's showing the blindness that we all walked in before we knew Jesus, before we could see the way. And he spent three days blind, just as Jesus spent three days in the grave. He walked through the death of Jesus. This is what Paul is going through right now. He's experienced the death of his old self, the death of who he is, the death of his pride. And he's carried into Jerusalem, Damascus, by by the men that were with him. He had to humble himself. He was now a blind man. The man who was self-sufficient in himself now had to be guided by the hand into Damascus. And he's humbled. That, that's what the death of Christ does to us. It humbles us and it brings us to his feet because we understand that there's nothing good in us. There's nothing good. And so this is part of Paul. He's being humbled now. And I have no doubt as he sat praying. It says he, he prayed for those three days. He sat there fasting. Not eating or drinking anything, just in prayer. And I don't think he was thinking, oh, Jesus will come back, I'll restore my sight and I'll be an apostle to him. I think he was thinking, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back this second time and bring judgment on me. And I think he was praying for his forgiveness and praying because he finally understood and he saw Jesus. And so then we come to verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, I here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, at the house of Judas, looking for the man of Tarsus named Saul. Look, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief to bind all who call on your name. So, Ananias, not the Ananias from Ananias and Sapphira that got killed, obviously, and also the house of Judas, probably not the guy, the disciple of Jesus who got hanged. There's a lot of repetitive names throughout the Bible. We don't really know too much about him. Ananias, a believer, a devout man, and one who did trust in God. 
And that's pretty much all we need to know. And so Ananias, when he gets this vision, is dumbfounded. And I think rightfully so. Because why would Jesus save this one? Why would you want me to go to the man who wants to kill me? That makes no sense. And it's interesting why Jesus didn't just save him when, he, when the light shone. Why didn't he just do it then? And it's interesting that he sends a believer to bring salvation to another believer, to bring the Holy Spirit. It's almost this picture of what we all do now. Largely the way that people come to faith is through their family and their friends, through people who believe in Jesus. And so this is the way that he wants to model it. I will go, but you will, I will be with you, but you will be my vessel and you will bring faith and the Holy Spirit to Paul. And obviously, I think Ananias is, while it's a bit funny for him to say that to God as though God doesn't know, I think it's probably the only fair thing to say at that point in time. And now, God's response to him. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Now this is just another amazing point. Saul was God's chosen instrument. Saul's journey of hatred and murder before his conversion, before he was saved, that was all part of God's plan. All of our journey before we came to know Jesus was also part of the plan. He didn't start correcting our life once we got the Holy Spirit, once we were saved. He was in there orchestrating every part of it, forming who we are. Just as he formed Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he was forming him as well. And so, and he's formed us. And just the importance of the word chosen. He was God's chosen instrument. Many people will tell us nowadays, make a choice for Christ. Choose God, not the world. And we should choose God. But the more important thing is that God chooses us. That's not a thing we can understand and it's not a thing we can make him do. But if we are in this room and we call him our saviour, then we are his chosen. And there's an importance to this because it's such a greater assurance than our choosing him. Because... I bet I could do something. Or like, I bet someone could threaten you to murder you and you would likely recant. You would likely turn back against that if you had chosen God. But knowing that God chose us, he says it in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To know that God chose us before there was this building, before your parents, before the very dirt on which we stand had been formed, before all of creation, he had chosen you. said, I will save you and I will sanctify you and I will glorify you and I will bring you to be in heaven with me. That is a much greater assurance than any kind of choosing we could do. And that's what he's saying to Paul, to Ananias, to tell to him, he will be my chosen instrument. I choose him. And it's a great thing. Because Paul never wanted God. He didn't need him. He didn't think he needed him. But this is the miraculous thing. That he just interceded into his life and miraculously appeared. And understanding that 
we need to understand that we did not want God before he came to us. He came to us first. We did not go to him. And it's an important thing to understand. Because if you think you came to him first, then you will always try to do things in your own strength. There's, you can never give the rest that he offers if you think that you did the thing to bring you to salvation. But when you realize that he did everything, whew, burden off. So, yeah, again, this just continues to mirror our conversion. The same miracle that happened to Paul happened to us. Goes, chose us, chose. God chose us and saved us. Now, it says also that Jesus had a purpose for Paul. He said, he will carry my name to the Gentiles, which we know he did. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning God said, okay, Jesus, when he came, he preached to the Israelites. He preached to the God's people. And he specifically picked out Paul to preach to the Gentiles. Not that the other apostles didn't preach to the Gentiles, but there was a very specific importance in Paul that he would be the one that would spread it far and wide. That, as we know, he traveled to the far reaches of the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. So he witnessed before the Gentiles. He witnessed before kings at the end of Acts. He appears before the king of Judea, and and he also appeared before Nero, the emperor of Rome, the guy who ended up killing him. Um... And so we know he also witnessed to God and Jesus before those kings. And then he also witnessed to the children of Israel. Because he still yearned to see them saved. Even though there is a point we'll reach in Acts where it says that where Paul gets sick of the Jews and he turns to the Gentiles and starts to preach to them instead. But Paul, whenever he goes to a city, he first goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He always goes to the Jews and starts with them. Because they were God's first. And then he says, from them, from Israel will flow the blessing to the Gentiles. And so then he goes to the Gentiles. So we see Jesus had a purpose for him, to witness to the gospel, to proclaim his name. And this sermon is really just a big one about everything that happens to you before your conversion. He was loved before his conversion, before he was born. He was chosen before he was born. And his purpose was set before he was born. He did not choose to be the apostle. He did not choose any of it. God said, this is my purpose for you. And he didn't, got, he didn't want God, but God wanted him. So we'll continue on now in these last few verses. Verse 16 through 19. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, there's a lot in there. Particularly, the scales falling from the eyes is an interesting thing. I honestly just think Luke was a doctor and so he probably saw the scales peeling from the eyes as some kind of medical term. Um, but what is he saying? He, was re- he regained his sight. The Holy Spirit came and he was able to see. Able to see what? More than just what was in front of him. More than just the real world. 
He could see Jesus clearly. He could see his sin clearly. Finally, he was no longer the righteous man. He was the humbled servant who saw his sin, who had prayed for forgiveness, and forgiveness was given. And he saw his need for a saviour finally. He had accepted the gospel. God had sent him into the depths of his own heart to see his sin, and he saw it. And now, that's what we have. The Holy Spirit helping us to see our sin can sometimes seem like a curse. I enjoyed the blissful ignorance before I was Christian. I enjoyed it because I didn't have to worry so much. I wasn't just constantly in conviction and guilt about all the things that I do. But now I do. I'm in conviction every day. I pray every day that God would come back so that it would be over because I'm really tired of sin. But it's a blessing that we were able to see our sin because our sin enables us to see our Saviour, our Saviour who paid for it. Because we do have to grieve our sin and look at it because now we can see it. But the solution is also presented right before our eyes. He doesn't come to us with just the problem. He comes with the solution, saying Jesus has done everything for you. He chose you, he has sanctified you, and he will carry you to heaven. And he is this Holy Spirit. He gives us a new heart with new desires. We don't walk in the sinful ways. We don't breathe murder and threats like we used to. We don't hate God anymore. We love him. It can seem like a a mixed feeling sometimes because we still fight the sin. In this world, it is war, and we do have to fight it every day. That's, That's why we still long for heaven, because it won't be war anymore. It's peace, and it's good, and life is great. But we hold on to that day, and we long for it. But just know it's a precious gift, that Holy Spirit, even though it can sometimes seem like a burden and a curse. Deal with that conviction. I just want to go back to one verse. Nine, uh, verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God is going to put Paul through a lot of suffering. We're going to see that as we go through Acts. Honestly, it's a couple chapters later. He gets stoned almost to the point of death. And then he hops up and walks back into the city and keeps preaching the gospel. And so, why did God do this? It's a very interesting thing. I just want to go to... Oh, we'll go to 2 Corinthians 11. Um, we'll go, yeah, 11... Sorry, 22 to 29. Now, Paul attests that as he suffered, we also must suffer. Now, as we look at his... He he has a collection of his suffering. So he actually gives quite a similar resume to what he did in Philippians. He says... uh, I'm missing it here. Sorry, a bit lost. There you go. Are you Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. So in his last resume, he was talking all about what made him good, what made him righteous. Now, what does he boast in this time? I am, I am a better one with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, lots of whippings, lots of beatings, lots of stonings, got shipwrecked, um, in danger from robbers, people, Gentiles, city, wilderness, just lots and lots and lots of suffering. The guy didn't have like a, you know, a get time to go on sabbaticals or get time to, you know, oh, I'm just going to head off to the Gold Coast for two weeks. Old mate just suffered his entire life. Why would God call him to do that? 
Honestly, it still perplexes me a bit to this day. But it's funny because he also tells us, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then Jesus also says, I'm sure we all know this one, If anyone would come after me and let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Anyway, the thing was, just as Paul's conversion mirrored the three days in the grave, he also mirrors his resurrection when these scales fall from his eyes. And we're actually told that if we want the resurrection, that we also have to participate with Jesus in his death and his suffering. That is our lot as Christians. It is not an easy and a crazy life. It is not an easy time. Even if we live in this great country of Australia where we're not persecuted by our government, you're still surrounded by your sin. It's not an, an easy time. We can hide from it and do it all we want, but this life is suffering. Some of us will go through things like Paul might have. Some of us will come from upbringings and things that were not nice that we've had to suffer through and that we will continue to suffer through. We will be betrayed by people. We will be countless of things. Maybe even beaten. But understand that our suffering, it humbles us. Because Jesus, he doesn't want strong, mighty people. He wants them, to put it known sometimes, broken and weak. Because when you're broken and weak, you trust in him. And Paul says at the end, I will boast all the more of my weaknesses because so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He trusts far more in the weaknesses and the imprisonments because he knows that it has humbled him and has brought him to the foot of the cross where Jesus can come and say, it is all right, I have taken and done it all and now come with me into eternal life. It is not the sign of a true Christian that we, have, that we are generous or that we have good health or that we are even a good person. But we see true Christians when they suffer and endure and still say God is good when they believe all that. It is not an easy thing and I will never say it is, but God will provide absolutely everything you need to be able to do it. Yeah. Anyway, that's pretty much it for today. I hope you enjoyed that uplifting one for a change. Um, But yeah, I'll just pray now. Father, we thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world. That you have done it all. You said on the cross, it is finished. And you meant it. The work has been done. Your son has achieved it. Now, all we need to do is just to trust, to endure, and to know that one day you will come back gather all of your children to take us away and to finally put a death, put sin to death forever. We long for that. You pray, we pray that you would make that truth known in our hearts, that we would live it out, that we would not give up, that we would not, never let go of the faith which you have given us and that we would just find a deeper joy in you knowing that we never wanted you, but nonetheless you came for us and we are so glad you did. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.